Welcome to Bloom and Ruin, Hallow's Eve. Let us begin. <laughs> Laura's Wish by Zack Mirrell Laura is scrubbing dishes. Her head nods. The clock tick, tick, ticks. The wind whistles by the window. It's midnight. The bubbles pop in the grimy water. Laura watches them. She can feel her eyes and her eyelids. Her head is heavy. It's 1am, then it's 2, then 3. Laura sips her coffee and leans over the table. The tiny black letters blur, but if she doesn't blink, they'll be normal again. She can hear the breathing in the other room. Each breath is a long, scratchy rasp in and out. She can hear the rasps and the tick ticking and the whistle of the wind and her eyelids flutter and the room is heavy all around her. She then hears the raspy voice shrieking from the other room. Laura! Laura! Laura doesn't move. She hears the voice getting louder and louder. Laura! 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 Finally, Laura enters the room. Her mother is lying on the bed and the sheets are pulled back. Her skin is dry and her bones show through the skin and the orbits poke out around her eyes like binoculars. She has dry lips, and the lips open and say, Laura, help me. I've had an accident. Laura helps her mother out of bed, and she can smell it. She cleans her mother and changes the sheets. It's 4am. The washing machine rattles loudly. A cockroach slinks across the tiles. Laura watches it. She lifts up her foot and the cockroach hisses before the slipper crushes it. The letters are blurring. The coffee is cold. The room is so heavy. The clock tick, tick, ticks, and the wind whistles, and the rasp comes in, then goes out, and the air is so heavy, weighing Laura down and pulling her under the earth, and her head is pulling down, and her eyelids are pulling down, and she wishes she were very far away. She imagines herself back at the farmhouse of her childhood, back to the raging bonfires that would shoot their sparks up to the stars, and the morning sun that would make the juice sparkle on the fresh grass and on the mailbox and running down the wall. Her brothers are running wild over the grass, but she's stuck mopping the floor in the basement. There are cockroaches everywhere running on the grimy concrete floor. They scuttle over her naked feet and squish between her toes. She pulls herself up to the stool, she looks up through the basement window and she can see her brothers. Then her mother comes and her golden hair curls around her shoulders and her blue eyes sparkle and she offers her hand and she pulls Laura out of the basement and hugs her tight and Laura can feel the warm skin and the heartbeat against her cheek and the voice shrieks, Laura! 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 Laura wakes up. She walks to the door and enters the room. The cockroach is lying on the bed and she hisses and shrieks.
Blood Game by Davis Anderson. Home had never been further from Tom. Despite being a scant number of miles away from the town's borders, the pitch-black night, the unrelenting chill, and the gaping wound on his thigh made Tom believe his chances of seeing his home again were not high. The duty was sacred. The duty was imperative. The duty was what kept the town alive. Yet no one would volunteer. No one, except Tom. A serpentine root caught his foot and sent him tumbling onto the snow-ridden forest floor. Twigs and prickles scraped his flesh and entered his wound. A scream burst from his lips, along with a spray of blood. With his fingers barely gaining purchase, Tom climbed up one of the small ridges situated on either side of the path and dragged himself to the base of a tree, twisting around to place his back on its trunk. Panting from the strain, Tom scooped up a lump of snow in his hand and placed it gingerly on his wound. Jolts of pain seared through his body and continued to pulse violently. Every time his chest rose and fell, it was like a razor being drawn up along his stomach. Tom swore and pitched the snow away. Shaking his head, Tom leaned back into the trunk. The fetid stench of blood reached his nostrils and he forced himself not to retch. He was shivering more than he was breathing. His mind began to fall back to the hours before his departure. Cynthia placed a purple crystal in his hand. He did not recall her words, only her face. Tears pouring down her cheeks, begging, pleading. But Tom's mind was cast in iron. No crystal could change that. The townsfolk found them tore them apart. They took him to the outskirts of town and told him not to return. Tom coughed into his hand. He stared at the blood in his palm and wiped it on the bark behind him. With his other hand, he reached into his tattered satchel and pulled out the crystal. It faintly pulsed with a beautiful shade of blue light. He raised his arm to throw it away, but stopped and instead lifted it to his eye and watched as the snow fell upon it. The first time Tom had seen the crystal, it was in an ornate and heavily padlocked box that was splattered with fresh blood. Its owner, clutching the deep slashes on his chest, ranted and raved about the crystal's power, its potential to save the town from the horror that preyed upon it. The owner thrusted the box into Tom's chest and died in Cynthia's arms. A low growling rumbled through the snowy trees. Tom peered through the crystal. A raging crimson aura flared back at him. He lowered the crystal. Standing on the opposite ridge was the creature that had inflicted Tom's wound. It bared its teeth and slowly began to advance. Tom shifted onto his feet, stowed the crystal away, and readied his blood-stained knife. The creature pounced, diving towards Tom's wound. Tom swiftly lashed out his foot and sent its snout flying in the other direction. He whipped out his hand and seized the creature's tongue 
and yanked it down with as much strength as he could muster. The creature yelped at this, but it howled in agony when Tom used his knife to pin its tongue to the ground. The creature writhed its mangy fur-covered body until Tom swung his knee around its midsection and dug it into the creature's side. He seized both sides of its head and began to twist. Hard. A short pop and a sickening crack later, Tom dropped the creature. Its head hit the ground with a wet thud. Its beady red eyes faded to black. Tom collapsed onto his back. The exertion of the kill had robbed him of the last vestiges of his strength. As he gazed through the snowy canopy, Tom reflected on his unfulfilled duty. The sacrifice had not been made and the moon was still full. It was already too late. A trail of blood led from where Tom lay to a cave some distance away. This cave was a home to an evil. An evil whose thirst was slaked only through blood. Every year, it was one member of the town for the entire pack of creatures that festered in the cave. Every year, the attacks on the town decreased. They had begun to feel safe. Every year, Tom lost another friend. He made a pact with himself. No more would die. Not even him. So Tom stood in the cave mere hours ago, holding his knife in a quivering hand behind his back. In his other, he clutched the crystal tight. The largest of the creature's pack, their alpha, padded towards him with the steely and murderous calm of a lion. Its cankerous lip flipped upwards as its cascade of teeth unfurled from within its mouth. Tom squeezed his knife, but it did not quell his trembling. The crystal pulsed with heat. The alpha continued forward. Sweat beaded on Tom's forehead. The crystal's heat was rising, singeing his fist and turning it red in hue. The alpha loomed over Tom. The crystal burned a hole in his palm. Tom screamed. The alpha reared back. Tom slashed it across the chest with the same blade that now lay by his side in the snow, adorned with the dried blood of the alpha. The adrenaline was drained from Tom's body, but he rose to his feet, shaking off the snow. He lifted one foot and placed it forward, then the other. Two less steps he needed to return home. A seismic growl shook the snow from the trees and made Tom collapse from the tremors. He lifted his head from the ground and sighed. He knew exactly what was behind him. The Alpha strode down the forest path, flanked by scores of the creatures running alongside it on the ridges. It stopped, and in perfect unison, so did the pack. An unseemly swarm of red eyes bore directly into Tom. There was no sound, save for the wind. Tom wiped the blood from his mouth and flicked it towards the pack. A couple of the creatures surged forward, but the Alpha barked harshly, and they slinked back. Tom dug his knife into the ground and used it to stand up. He shifted his feet and raised his blade. He could not run. He could not return. 
all that was left was to fight. As he moved to attack, he felt a warm sensation on his side. He shot a look down. The crystal was glowing so bright it shone through the fabric of the satchel. Tom pulled it out and rested it in his palm. Unlike before, it did not burn him. He peered through it and saw his own aura. It was red, violent. He shook his head and looked away. The Alpha still stood in the centre of the pack, waiting. Tom looked back to the crystal. No urge to throw it away overcame him. Only a sense of calm, a calm he had never felt before. Tom raised his head high. He dropped his knife. The Alpha jerked its head to one side. Tom locked his eyes with it and shoved the crystal directly into his wound. He did not scream until it was fully submerged in his body. He faltered, but did not fall. Blood poured from his thigh as Tom spread his arms wide. The Alpha pounded towards him, and the pack moved as one to descend upon Tom. He felt their teeth digging into his leg, their tongues scraping the flesh off his bones and all of the blood being drained from his body, but he felt no pain. A blinding blue light filled his vision as his mind finally became still. Six months passed. The town still stood, and so did the creatures. However, they no longer fed on blood, only the occasional scrap or tool of iron that was left unattended. They were not feral, scarcely attacking other beings, even when provoked. They no longer had eyes that burned a raging red. Instead, they glowed a beautiful shade of blue. Transformation by Mary Shelley Forthwith this frame of mine was wrenched with a woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it set me free. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns, until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. I have heard it said that when any strange, supernatural and necromantic adventure has occurred to a human being, that being, however desirous he may be to conceal the same, feels at certain periods torn up, as it were, by an intellectual earthquake and is forced to bear the inner depths of his spirit to another. I am a witness to the truth of this. I have dearly sworn to myself never to reveal to human ears the horrors to which I once, in excess of fiendly pride, delivered myself over. I know only that so it is, and in spite of strong resolve, of a pride that too much masters me, of shame and even of fear, so to render myself odious to my species I must speak. Dost thou remember me in my boyhood? I quailed before my father only, and he generous and noble, but capricious and tyrannical. My father had one friend, like my father he was a widower. He bade one child, the most infant Juliet, who was left under my father's guardianship. 
A variety of childish incidents all tended to one point, to make Juliet see me in a rock of refuge. We grew up together. The opening rose in May was not more sweet than this dear girl. Well, those days passed away. I was alone, friendless. I wandered along the seashore, a whirlwind of passion possessing and tearing my soul. Round this cape suddenly came, driven by the wind, a vessel. A rock, just covered by the tossing waves, and so unperceived, lay in wait for its prey. A crash of thunder broke over my head at that moment that, with a frightful shock, the skiff dashed upon her unseen enemy. In a brief space of time she went to pieces. The dark breakers threw hither and thither, and fragments of the wreck soon disappeared. I had been fascinated to gaze till the end. At last I sank on my knees, I covered my face with my hands, I again looked up, something was floating on the billows towards the shore. It neared and neared. Was that a human form? It grew more distinct, and at last a mighty wave lifting the whole freight lodged it upon a rock. A human being bestriding a sea chest. A human being! Yet, was it one? Surely never such had existed before, a misshapen dwarf with squinting eyes, distorted features, and body deformed, till it became a horror to behold. By Saint Beelzebub, he exclaimed, I have been well bested. He looked round and saw me. Oh, by the fiend, here is another ally of the mighty one. To what saint did you offer prayers, friend, if not to mine? Yet I remember you not on board. I shrank from the monster and his blasphemy. Again he questioned me, and I muttered some inaudible reply. He continued, Your voice is drowned by this dissonant roar. What a noise the big ocean makes. Schoolboys bursting from their prison are not louder than the waves set free to play. They disturb me. I will know more of their ill-timed brawling. Silence, winds, clouds, fly to the antipodes and leave our heaven clear. As he spoke, he stretched out his two long, lank arms that looked like spider's claws and seemed to embrace with them the expanse before him. I like obedience even in these stupid elements, said the dwarf. How much more in the tameless mind of man it was a well-got-up storm you must allow, and all of my own making. It was tempting Providence to interchange talk with this magician, but power, in all its shapes, is venerable to man. Awe, curiosity, a clinging fascination, drew me towards him. Come, don't be frightened, friend, said the wretch. I am good-humoured when pleased, and something does please me in your well-proportioned body and handsome face, though you do look a little woe-begone. You have suffered. I can allay the tempest of your fortunes as I did my own. Shall we be friends? And he held out his hand. I could not touch it. The voice of the wretch was screeching and horrid, and his contortions as he spoke were frightful to behold. Yet he did gain a kind of influence over me, which I could not master, and I told him my tale. "'What would you that I should do?' I cried. "'I owe nothing but lie down and say your prayers before you die, but were I you, I know the deed that should be done.' I drew near him. His supernatural powers made him an oracle in my eyes, yet a strange unearthly thrill quivered through my frame as I said, "'Speak, teach me, what act do you advise?' Revenge thyself, man, humble thy enemies, set thy foot on the old man's neck, and possess thyself of his daughter. 
The dwarf had been seated on his chest as he listened to my story. Now it flew open. What a mine of wealth, of blazing jewels, beaming gold and pale silver was displayed therein. A mad desire to possess this treasure was born within me. I am less omnipotent than I seem. Some things I possess which you may covet, but I would give them all for a small share or even a loan of what is yours. As nothing is my sole inheritance, what besides nothing would you have? Your comely face and well-made limbs? I shivered. I ask for a loan, not a gift, said the frightful thing. Lend me your body for three days. You shall have mine to cage your soul the while, and in payment my chest. What say you to the bargain? Three short days. I felt a keen desire to comply, for with that chest I could command the world. My only hesitation resulted from a fear that he would not be true to his bargain. He swore many an oath, and I adjured him by many a sacred name, till I saw this wonder of power, this ruler of elements, shiver like an autumn leaf before my words, and as if the spirit spake unwillingly with broken voice, revealed the spell whereby he might be obliged, did he wish to play me false, to render up the unlawful spoil, our warm lifeblood must mingle, to make and to mar the charm. Enough of this unholy theme. I was persuaded the thing was done. The morrow dawned upon me as I lay upon the shingles, and I knew not my own shadow as it fell from me. I felt myself changed to a shape of horror, and cursed my easy faith and blind credulity. The chest was there. There the gold and precious stones for which I had sold the frame of flesh which nature had given me. The sight a little stilled my emotions. Three days would soon be gone. They did pass. The dwarf had supplied me with a plenteous store of food. At first I could hardly walk, so strange and out of joint were all my limbs, and my voice, it was that of the fiend. But I kept silent and turned my face to the sun, that I might not see my shadow, and counted the hours and ruminated on my future conduct. During dark night I slept and dreamt of the accomplishment of my desires. Two suns had set, the third dawned. I was agitated, fearful. The evening star shone bright. He will soon be here. He came not, by the living heavens he came not, and night dragged out its weary length, and in its decaying age day began to grizzle its dark hair. But it was not I, it was he, the fiend, arrayed in my limbs, speaking with my voice, winning her with my looks of love. What did it mean? Was my dream but a mirror of the truth? Was he wooing and winning my betrothed? For if I had acted as the wretch who had stolen my form had acted, there was but one way to prevent this, to meet mine enemy and to enforce the ratification of our agreement. I felt that this could only be done by a mortal struggle. I had no sword, if indeed my distorted arms could wield a soldier's weapon, but I had a dagger, and in that lay my every hope. I rushed forward, threw myself on him, I tore him away, I cried, O oh, loathsome and foul-shaped wretch! A shriek rose from Juliet's lips. I neither heard nor saw. I felt only mine enemy, whose throat I grasped. And my dagger's hilt, he struggled, but could not escape. At length, hoarsely, he breathed these words. Do strike home, destroy this body. You will still live. May your life be long and merry. The descending dagger was arrested at the word, and he, fielding my hold relax, extricated himself and drew his sword. In the midst of my frenzy there was much calculation. Fall I might, and so that he did not survive, I cared not for the death blow I might deal against myself. While still, therefore, he thought I paused, and while I saw the villainous resolve to take advantage of my hesitation, in the sudden thrust he made at me, I threw myself on his sword, and at the same moment plunged my dagger, with a true desperate aim in his side. We fell together, rolling over each other, and the tide of blood that flowed from the gaping wound of each mingled in the grass. More I know not, I fainted. 
Again I returned to life, weak, almost to death. I found myself stretched upon a bed. Juliet was kneeling beside it. I confess it as weakness, but I avow it. I do entertain a considerable affection for the countenance and limbs I behold whenever I look at a glass and have more mirrors in my house and consult them oftener than any beauty in Venice. Before you two condemn me, permit me to say that no one better knows than I the value of his own body. No one, probably, except myself, ever having had it stolen from him. I did not revisit the seashore, nor seek for the fiend's treasure, yet... While I ponder on the past, I often think, and my confessor was not backward in favouring the idea, that it might be a good rather than evil spirit sent by my guardian angel to show me the folly and misery of pride. Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, where the dissolution shuts him out from the aid and sympathy of his fellow men and the whole seizure progress and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour but the prince prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious when his dominions were half populated he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys this was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled them in. The wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and hammers and welded the bolts in. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair from without or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned, with such precautions the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisatory. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. But first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite, there was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor, which pursued the windings of the suite. 
These windows were of stained glass, whose colour varied in accordance with the hue and decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lit with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the colour of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood colour. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers, but in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room, and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western, black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when its minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came forth from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and musical, exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians in the orchestra were constrained to pause, momently in their performance, to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole wild company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and that the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and they made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. But, in spite of these things, it was an epic and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colour and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with a barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. It was his own guiding taste which had given character to the costumes of the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were arabesque figures with unsweeted limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. 
To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And then there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet, and then, momently, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-coloured panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls, and to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. And the revel went whirlingly on, until at length was sounded the twelfth hour upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened. Perhaps that more thought crept, with more of time, into the mediations of the thoughtful, among those who reveled. And thus again it happened, perhaps that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence. There were many individuals in the crowd who had become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumour of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive at first of shock and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had outherited Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse, and yet all this might have endured, if not approved by the mad revellers around. But the figure had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the group that stood near him, who dares insult us with the blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, 
so that we may know who we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the blue chamber in which the Prince Prospero uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms, loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of the revellers in the direction of this intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the figure had inspired the whole party, there was found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centres of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn, measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even then to the violet. Here, a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers. While none followed him, on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all, he bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly round and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped, gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revellers at once threw themselves into the black room, and seizing the figure, who stood tall and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, they gasped in unutterable horror, at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revellers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in their despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the revellers and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. This has been Bloom and Ruin. Hallows Eve. Many thanks to our writers and performers. We shall see you all soon. <laughs>